Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 25, 21 through 23. I might need those lights on. (laughs) Thank you. Again, Matthew 25, 21 through 23. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put in you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Amen. Um, your uh, allegiance to Jesus here in chapel has always inspired me and continues to do so. Um, your faith, your love, your commitment to um, make sure that Chapel in the Pines is ready for Christ's return is remarkable. And I know that the, all of you have had to put in some extra effort the last couple years to do that, um, especially your leaders, right, in facing COVID um, and some of the national emergencies and, and crises. Um, your leaders, whether that be your worship leaders, your um, pastor, of course, your church staff, your church uh, board, your leadership team, and, and so forth, um, they've all had to be quite innovative the last couple years to be faithful and to make sure that chapel is faithful and ready for Christ's return at any time. Um, he could have returned in the middle of COVID. Some of us were hoping that he would have. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we have to be ready. And I just think we should give an applause to all your leaders for being so faithful. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, I think, a little easier to make sure a church stays focused on Jesus than it is for us individually to keep our focus on Jesus. I think it's easier because a church, we know why a church exists, we know its mission, it's real clear. But for us, you know, the busyness of our lives, um, the trials that we face, the struggles we go through, um, there all seem to be temptations to what some have been said that sometimes we are tempted to compartmentalize our faith, which is just, you know, where we, it's just easier to say, um, I think about Jesus when I go to church or when I'm in my small group, but then outside of that, you know, I'm, I'm scattered and I, and I forget about my call or my purpose at work or forget about it at school or I forget about it with my neighbors and And yet God calls us to a a fancy theological term that we call the centrality of Christ, which is just a fancy way of saying God calls us to keep Jesus at the center of our lives. If you pictured a wheel as your life, uh, the the centrality of Christ would be be having Jesus in in the middle, um, right in the middle of that wheel instead of just one of the spokes. Now, it may seem pretty simple, and we may say, of course Jesus is at the center of my life. Um, I'm 
involved, I'm committed, I live a good life. But in all honesty, it's, it's harder to do uh, than, we really, than we realize. I mean, most of us actually struggle just keeping Jesus as a spoke in our lives, much less at the center. So, you know, when we think about God's standards of holiness, God's standards of perfect love, um, it's, it's hard to know how to measure uh, ourselves. For instance, you know, we all know we need to pray more, we need to study the scriptures more, we need to care for the poor more, we need to be less selfish, we need to be more generous. Um, are, are we doing enough? And how do we know that God is pleased with us? Right? How, how do we measure our allegiance to Jesus? Is there a measuring rod? How do we know that we're okay? That we're doing enough? And I think in all honesty, I think we wrestle with these questions from time to time. Um, and that's why I have entitled the message um, for this morning called, How Much is Enough? How much faith, how much prayer, how much sacrifice, how much service, how much devotion, how much witnessing, how much is enough that would define us as good and faithful servant? I mean, we all want to hear those words when we face the Lord at the end of our days. Now, the passage I want to explore with you today has actually been quite disturbing for many people when they think about that question, when they process how much is enough. Uh, one such gentleman I know shared with me one time that this passage caused him to fear death. Now, he was a Christian, he believes in Jesus, he's asked forgiveness for his sins, he's been born again of the Holy Spirit, he loves God, but this passage that we're going to look at today actually kept him a little distant from God, because he was fearful of not knowing how God was going to respond to him upon his passing into glory. And so that kind of inspired me, I get kind of inspired when people... Um, our, uh, when struggle with a certain passage or it's a difficult passage, I get a little stubborn with God, like I'm going to lock myself in this room and I'm not getting out until you show me the real meaning because that just can't be true. That's not the God we know. That's not the God who, who out of such great mercy and love gave himself fully to us, that we should fear him if we're not doing enough. And so um, that's the passage I want to share with you today because this passage became actually a comfort to me as I really dug into it and actually understood it correctly, it actually comforts me and gives me great peace and assurance of how God views me and, um, and how I can be faithful back to him. So the passage we're going to look at today is the parable of the talents. Many of you are probably familiar with it. It's a pretty familiar passage. You've probably heard it in Sunday school. Um, it's in Matthew 25. Um, some translations start it in verse 9 because it just depends on their, um, on their translations, but in some translations it in, starts in verse 14. Um, some translations might name it the parable of the talents. Some might name it the parable of, of the bags of gold, the parable of the minya, because a talent in that time was actually um, a minya. So the literal translation is a minya. When we get into that, when Jesus uses talents, um, it's, he actually used minya, which translate to talent in our language. But minya was a monetary value. Um, 
it was, um, it was something that you could um, actually earn. It was a unit worth about 20 years of wages. So it was a huge amount. <laughs> I want you to think of 20 years of wages being in one coin. So this is, this is a big deal, okay? So, so it's not, it can include our abilities, of course. It can include our spiritual gifts. It can include our talents. And you've probably heard it taught, you know, that this message, this text is particular to calling out people to invest their, use their talents for God and for God's kingdom, which of course is one of the themes, but it goes so much deeper than that. So um, in this parable, before we get into it, a parable is a fictional story with a lesson to be learned. Okay, a parable has metaphors. So the, before this parable, we always want to look at the context, what Jesus is actually talking about. Why did he come up with this story in the first place? What, what was the central theme he was trying to communicate to his listeners at the time? So we know before this parable in Matthew 25, um, 1 through 13, uh, the, it's the parable of the 10 bridesmaids, and the bridesmaids are being ready for Christ's return. So that gives us a clue, like, okay, Jesus is actually trying to prepare his people for his return. Now, he hasn't left yet. They don't know he's going to leave, but he wants them to have that assurance that he talked to them about returning when he actually does leave. And then the parable after the parable of the talents uh, teaches that the Son of Man will come again in his great glory with his angels. He will be king and sit on his great throne. All the nations of the world will be gathered before him. So we get the theme of this parable. The context is God's plan for God's kingdom come on the earth. Now, the Jewish people had been longing for this. They had been under suppression, political oppression, um, and they were hanging on to faith. You know those seasons in your life where you're hanging on to faith where it doesn't make sense, where everything is going wrong and every answer to your prayer is no. And maybe the, what's happening is the very opposite of what you've been praying for. <laughs> I, I've been there. <laughs> and there are many seasons like that for many of us. And so the Jewish people were no different. They, they were hanging on to the faith of this promise given to their people all the way back to King David that God's, uh, God's kingdom, the living God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh, would come and establish his rule and his kingdom here on earth. And therefore, all their enemies would be, would be put in their place, and they would be free again. And so they're longing, they're waiting for the Messiah to do this. This is their concept of God's plan. So Jesus begins to tell them God's plan to set up God's eternal kingdom on the earth is true. What you're hoping for will happen, but it will unfold in stages. It won't happen immediately. And he needs them to know this because he's about to die. He's about to be crucified. And with his crucifixion, every hope that they had of being delivered from their enemies and God's kingdom come to rule and reign on the earth will be shattered. And so he encourages them. This is, this is, a, this is a parable of encouragement that my plan to bring God's kingdom, to bring my kingdom onto the earth will occur, but it won't happen as you think. 
It will occur in stages. So let's, let's start the parable. Um, let's look at the first slide there. For it, and he's talking just like we know from the previous parables, the coming of the kingdom of God and its full authority on the earth will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. So here Jesus again has a spiritual truth he wants to teach his people, but he's using a parable, and in the parable he's using metaphors. Jesus told stories. And I think he told stories to disarm us from our human reasoning, logic, intellectualism, that, that he's got to get past all that so we can even imagine something different than we can understand. So in this parable, Jesus is the master or the man who's about to leave them for a while. That's the metaphor he uses for himself. The metaphor he uses for um, uh, God's kingdom come is God's property, or the man's property that he leaves his servants in charge of. And then, like we said, a talent or minya represents God's resources, God's resources. We don't have a coin worth 20 years of wages. None of our money is worth anything like that, right? <laughs> None. So these are God's resources. So this minya or talent, first we have to understand, is not necessarily our worldly or human abilities or resources. They are the resources God gives his servants. Now, this man obviously is from another faraway country, it says in the story. So he's, he's trying to tell them, the, the resources I give you are not of this country. They're, they have a different weight, they have a different purpose, and they're very different from what you're used to. So there's two things, basically, he tells them. He'll be temporarily leaving them, but, however, he has given them everything they need to build his kingdom for his return. And they can be assured of that. Again, this is a parable of assurance, not fear. So we go on the story in the next slide, Matthew 16 through 18. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Basically, we see that the first two servants put the talents or the minya to work that the master had given them. The third servant dug a hole and buried it. The servants who invested the master's resources experienced a significant return on their investment. So far, we're tracking with the story. So we go on to the next couple slides. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And we see right away that the servants understood, first of all, that the talents they were given were not their own that they were stewards, they were servants. 
They did not own them. In fact, they knew exactly who they belonged to and who they were going to give them back to, including the increase of their labors. That how they invested these and whatever labor that, that, that occurred on their behalf or how smart they were or whatever it is that caused this investment to, to go to be a positive investment, even that return belonged to the king. Okay, so there's some important spiritual truths that God's trying to tell us in this section. Uh, one, the resources the king gave his servants were foolproof. Did you notice that? When they invested them for the purpose of preparing for the master's return, these resources multiplied. Not one of them experienced a loss. It's not like our stock market, right? They're foolproof. They're a sure guarantee for multiplication. Jesus is telling his disciples, then and now, I believe, the resources he gives to us between his first and second coming will indeed multiply. They will work. They will reap a return. Don't fear that you're going to come up empty when you put them to work. You don't have to hoard them like the other servant did. Okay? So they will, these resources that God has given us will be all that we need to prepare for his kingdom for his return. So let's think about for a minute what these talents might represent as God's resources. What does God give his people between his first and second coming to prepare for his return, to build his kingdom here on the earth, to be ready for his kingdom rule? What has he given us? First and foremost, God has given us the son, the son for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might be cleansed before God and be clean before a holy God. And then he's given us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us assurance we belong to the king and the king is coming back. And as we wait for his return, the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts to invest and to put to use for his return. The Holy Spirit helps us to employ prayer, worship, and understanding of God's word. We would not be able to prepare for God's return to the earth and set up his kingdom without the Holy Spirit. Everything we would do would fall flat. When we would invest our own human effort, we would suffer a loss, not a gain. Our human efforts would not multiply like God's resources do because of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when you think about it, not only did the Holy Spirit help us under not only does the Holy Spirit help us understand the word, but the Holy Spirit has given us the word. He's inspired human vessels to not leave us without a guide without truth, without understanding, while we wait for his return. And so God has not left us without resources. His word, I think creation is a resource God has left us with. It, it testifies to that, that there is a God who has created everything. It's beyond our comprehension. And when you think about it, um, Jesus' parables and stories are often uh, in the context of creation, when he's trying to tell a spiritual truth about the kingdom, he uses examples from creation. I think that's, for me, what that, and this is just my personal hunch, is that God created creation with some of the same principles that reflect the principles of the kingdom. Because they're hints to us. We learn more about creation, we learn more about God. We learn more about the kingdom. 
God has also given each of us according to his plan, monetary means, leadership skills, literal talents, various skills. He's, he's called us to, to invest resources like prayer, worship, charity, unconditional and sacrificial love, compassion, justice. These are all from God. These are, it says in the word that everything good comes from the Father above. These are resources. This is light on the earth that God has given us to invest, to prepare for his return. God has generously poured out the wisdom, the knowledge, the understanding, the resources, and the power to take care of and increase his kingdom for his return. God is not a king who has left us bankrupt. He doesn't leave us bankrupt and then expect us to have something to show for it. That is not who our Lord is. Now, what many of us overlook in the familiar story is that the talents the king gives his servants uh, are not only foolproof, but we mentioned they, 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 they increase, they, they multiply. Now, this, this idea of multiplication is actually scriptural. If you go back and you look at Jesus' teachings, it, you'll be amazed when I first started noticing it that in the Gospels, there's so much about multiplication. God is all about increase and multiplying his kingdom, increase and multiplying saints, increase and multiplying witness. He, he's about growth and multiplication. And he uses um, two metaphors predominantly, but you can see it throughout the New Testament as well when you look for it. But the predominant metaphors would be like yeast. We know yeast multiplies itself and expands in the dough, and it increases the bread, right? We also know that Jesus uses, uses the metaphor of the mustard seed. In Luke 13, 19, it said, It is like a mustard seed, which a man took, it is, meaning God's kingdom here on the earth and in heaven, is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched on its branches. Think of a seed you plant. It doesn't just instantly grow overnight, which is what God's people wanted God's kingdom to do. We wanted God to just come and set it up overnight. But you think of a seed, how long before you even see any hope, the cultivation it requires, the stages it goes through. Now, the mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds um, that we have. Uh, and the mustard seed plant is an annual that typically grows to a four-foot shrub, However, it has been known to grow as much as a 15 to 20 foot tall and wide tree near the Jordan River from a tiny little seed. And what Jesus wants to remind them and assure them is although his ministry seemed minuscule at the time, I mean, what did Jesus really do in their eyes to set up God's kingdom on the earth then? It seemed kind of pointless to them. I mean, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a horse, meaning he rode in with peace. He didn't ride in to conquer Rome. Although his ministry seems humble, like a little tiny seed, and minuscule, it will be like the mustard seed. It will expand, it will multiply, and nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the kingdom on the earth being formed, increased, and fully coming to us. And although some of us confuse this with the rewards uh, that we'll talk about in a minute, I want us just to sit with the power of God's resources, right? This lesson is not to be missed. 
when we employ the resources God has given us that we just listed to prepare for his kingdom come, we will not return empty. I think sometimes we're afraid that if we give away too much, if we do too much for the Lord, we might end up empty. That's just a human rationale. But like the widow in the Old Testament who's, who, who continues to, to serve and give out the little bit of oil that she has, as she gives it out, God keeps filling her cup. It's this concept that, that is different from this world, that God's minya, God's uh, resources, are made in such a way, his economy, you could say, is made in such a way that it increases as we give it out. It increases as we invest. How would that be different for us if we understood that and how we used our church resources and how we used our personal resources for God's kingdom come? Knowing that, that when we invest ourselves fully into God's kingdom come, our resources will actually increase. And this makes sense, right? I mean, a good investment is understood as investing something of, of value into something even more value, valuable. Right? So this is the premise of earning a return on one's investment, that I invest something of value into something even more valuable. The reason why God's resources are foolproof, the reason why they not only don't fail, but they increase is because when invested into God's kingdom, God's kingdom is more valuable than anything here we could invest into. They're even more valuable than the resources he gives us. God's kingdom is above all. And so therefore, we experience an increase, a return on our investment. As I like to say, and as I've experienced personally in my life, we can never outgive God. I want you to remember that. It's really simple. When you're afraid to do what he's asking you to give or sacrifice, time, money, talent, service, it could come in many different forms that God might ask you to give up something for him, for his purposes, for his calling, for his kingdom. You need to remind yourself we can never outgive God. Because God, as we saw in this story so far, that God will reward us as well. That not only are his resources foolproof and will increase and multiply, God then rewards us for our faithfulness for increasing his resources that multiply for us. That is a generous God, right? That is a good and generous God. As the resources God has given us to build his kingdom multiply, our kingdom responsibilities increase. He blesses our faithfulness. We'll see in the story in, in a few minutes that, and, and we will read, or actually we just read, that not only did the servants experience a multiplication of the minya or the talents they invested to give back to the king, then the king blessed them with more kingdom territory, with more kingdom property. And it, that kind of makes sense, right? As, our, as we make good investments into the kingdom, which increase and grow, we are given more kingdom responsibilities with those investments. He blesses us when we are faithful. Sometimes I think we need an eternal um, incentive to dive to ourselves for the glory of God instead of what we think is good for us. Because sometimes God asks us to do some really hard things. 
some really painful things. And I think we need an eternal incentive for this. When I first learned this concept that, that God rewards, which was kind of strange for me to even think of that. I mean, I grew up with God is big and all-powerful. I believed all that. I didn't know he was so close and intimate. But I certainly didn't think he would reward. I was just hoping he would be somewhat pleased. Right? I didn't understand the nature of God. But when I understood this as a new Christian, uh, my husband might remember this. Um, it's probably not the way God means it to be, but it helped me understand it. Is uh, I got a picture of Africa, which I was in love with at the time, and I put it like on, on our refrigerator. And I said, I want to run Africa for eternity. I'm going to run Africa. So if I'm going to run Africa, I better start increasing, or I better start investing in God's kingdom come now, big time. Because as I invest, the resources I invest only multiply, and as they multiply, God puts me in charge of more. So I'm going for Africa. <laughs> it's not really how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to give it all to Jesus, but it started the learning curve. So, um, and so Jesus is also teaching us that when he returns for his kingdom, there will be rewards and judgment, though. We're going to see in this story that, yes, there are... Um, foolproof investments to make with God's resources that multiply. And he rewards us for our faithfulness. But there's also judgment. Look with me in the next couple slides. Matthew 25, 24 through 30. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. Interesting. Just sit with that for a moment. I'm going to reread it. Because we miss that. We're going to get to the part of the story where you're just going to be like, why did God do that to him? And you get so caught up in that, you miss what the servant actually said. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Basically, Jesus calls him on his bluff and he sees his heart. It's not, it's not a good sight. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given, will be will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yikes. If you're like me, <laughs> you picture this story like this, right? You picture God being a hard taskmaster that cannot be pleased, and you might become like that gentleman I talked to that was fearful that God might treat him that way too. And how could he know if he'd done enough? It seems like the master's harsh. It seems like this poor wicked servant is seemingly left empty of, of his efforts. At least he's returning to the, to the master, the one. He didn't steal it. He didn't lose it. He's giving it back to him. However, if we know anything about God's character, we know that this image is not congruent with who God is and how he has acted in human history. 
nor is it congruent with our salvation being about faith and grace when we place our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. See, our salvation is not based on how much we do or don't do. And this man was so caught up in the end of this story that he forgot that. And if we're not careful, we can slip into this legalistic or works-oriented understanding of our salvation that paralyzes us with fear and condemnation. The language here is so strong that we tend to not hear what God points out. What is God pointing out? Did you catch the accusation of the, of the third servant when we read it twice? It wasn't a tone of humility before the king, nor was it apologetic, nor was it humble. Instead, this servant actually accused the king of being unfair and unjust. You gather what you have not um, sown. You reap what you have not sown. Here, take yours. This is yours. But why would I give you what I worked for? That's unjust. I, get, I knew you'd be like that, so I didn't even invest it. I knew you to be unfair. I knew you to be unjust, wanting what you didn't even earn. The servant accused the king of being a king that reaped or gathered what he did not work for himself. The servant was basically saying to the king, you're unfit, you're unjust, you're cruel. So he tells the king that he would only give him what belongs to him. And notice the servant's concern, right? It's not, his not your typical question that you and I might have when we worry if we do enough. The servant didn't come to the king like that. I'm so sorry. You know, I was just worried that maybe I'd lose it. The king... In the story, Jesus would have had this king or this master responding very differently. But the servant's accusation was not that I was worried that I couldn't do enough. The accusation was, you're unjust and you're cruel and you're unfair and I won't work for you. It is an accusation towards God that comes from the pit of hell. It is the arrogance of the devil to critique God himself. The Bible tells us that Lucifer, Satan, which means star of the morning, held a high-ranking position in the angelic host in the beginning. He was actually one of God's most beautiful and exquisite creations. He was given a position of great power and influence. And in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17, he's, re he's regarded as the guardian cherub. But we are also told that Lucifer's heart became proud, and so God dealt with him most severely. A little bit like what we just read. The third servant's accusation against the king is an echo of Satan himself who has attempted to undermine the building up of God's kingdom come. Those of us that may be worried that we don't do enough, that's not at all the heart of this servant. The servant was actually trying to undermine the increase I have a feeling this servant in this story, what Jesus is trying to tell us is this servant knew that God's resources multiply and he hid it because Jesus says, that's the case. Why didn't you just put it in the bank? Interest would increase. Instead, he's undermining the increase of God's kingdom come. He is against God, not for him. And this is why the king sends a servant back to where he came from. Jesus depicts the wicked servant's heart. He shows us that it was a heart of jealousy, of pride. 
And this is why this part of the kingdom, I mean, this part of the parable that focuses on judgment was directed actually to the Judean leaders, particularly the Pharisees. See, amidst the crowd is usually the Pharisees at Jesus when he's teaching. And the Pharisees were not happy with Jesus. Why? If you read, they weren't really just confused or they weren't really sincerely protecting God's kingdom. They were jealous. They were jealous of the crowds following Jesus and not having power over the crowds anymore. They were jealous of what that might mean in their relationship with Rome and and the, the benefits that they got out of that. What happens if God rearranges this whole thing and we can't run it anymore? And so Jesus is speaking to Judean leaders and he's saying, be careful. Be careful that you don't actually undermine the increase and multiplication of God's kingdom out of jealousy and pride. Be careful of that. And so the point of the parable is not to scare us into wondering if we've done enough to please God, right? Jesus shares this story to teach us, as we see in the next slide, living for God is not about doing enough. Living for God is about living to glorify God and helping others do the same. Living for God is about living to increase his kingdom come with whatever you're given. You're going to be given at least one. There was no servant that wasn't given something. Whatever you're given that you have a heart to, use it to increase God's kingdom come now and when Christ returns. Jesus shows us for the parable of talents what kind of, of servants he's looking for. When we think about it, it, it helps us to understand the difference between, let's say, a good businessman or woman and a Christian businessman or woman, right? Or maybe a good teacher or a Christian teacher. Maybe a good leader or a Christian leader. I'm, I teach at William Jessup University as associate professor in the School of Leadership and Theology, and I've wrestled with these leadership issues because one of the things we do is teach students all kinds of great leadership theories. We teach them all kinds of theories. But what makes us Christian? We say we're, we're the school of Christian leadership. I mean, they could go learn the same theories in a secular university, but what makes us Christian is that Christian leaders lead for the glory of God, not just for themselves or for the company that they're leading. See, what makes a good te- what distinguishes a good teacher from a Christian teacher is that Christian teachers do it for the glory of God. Good teachers are still good teachers, but Christian teachers, we do it for God's glory, God's kingdom come. It's not about how much we do, but it's about who we're doing it for and, and, and what we're doing in that. So we get to the so what of this uh, message. And the first one's pretty obvious, right? We're to live to glorify God in everything we do. We were created for this very purpose. My son asked me one time, you know, what's, what's the purpose of God creating people? I said, I can tell you the answer, but you're not going to like it. He said, what's the answer? I said, to worship God, to glorify God. He's like, isn't that kind of arrogant? It's my son. I said, if he wasn't God, (laughs) the Westminster Catechism asks us this, what is the chief end for humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
See, if we have placed our eternal security in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we need not fear if we're doing enough. That's not what it's about. If we've asked for forgiveness of our sins, we've been cleansed, we are a child of God from the inside out, we don't have to fear if we're doing enough. Because honestly, if you haven't done that yet, realize no one can live up to God's perfect standards. Like, the first questions I ask, how do you assess what's good enough? How many prayers to pray? How much money to give away? There, in a perfect holy God, not one of us could do enough. It's not about that. In fact, that's what Jesus is for. He did it for us. As forgiven children of God, then, we get to enjoy God by living for God. We enjoy God by living for God. The first and second servants were happy. They were joyful. And secondly, multiplication then becomes a way of life for us, right? We are called to invest what God has given us to increase his kingdom come. We live like the first two servants, not the third, and we experience multiplication in our lives because of it. As individuals, we do this by seeking first the kingdom, right? Investing in what God has given us into his kingdom, uh, by seeing how we um, invest God's kingdom in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our work contexts, in our, in our communities, in our churches. Uh, we recognize the value of the kingdom is greater than any resource we could, we could invest in in this, in this world. And so our lives can be focused on glorifying God. We can be assured that the investments we make into God's kingdom will not only be worth it, they will not return empty. This is why Jim Elliott, the missionary who became a martyr, said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, as a church, how, how do we make multiplication the way of our life as a church? This is a good thing for you to, to talk about at your next leadership team meeting because it's post-COVID is kind of a restart. Churches are just innovating, thinking about what's next, God? What are you doing in human history? So how can you make multiplication a way of your life, a way of your church life, a way of this church? First and foremost, we realize we don't need to play it safe. We don't need to play it safe because God's kingdom resources work. They multiply, they invest, they'll give us a return of God's kingdom right here as we use them. We don't bury or hoard the resources God has given us to care for, build, and prepare his kingdom for Christ's return. We don't have to live with a scarcity mindset. We serve a God who has given us resources that multiply, that will not return empty. And we need not fear that God will not take care of his kingdom as we invest in it. And so as we wrap up this message, I uh, come to the, we did the so what, now we get to the now what, which is like the final challenge. How can I challenge you today? Second Chronicles 16.9 on this next slide says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those who are fully committed to him. See, God is not looking for fearful servants who worry they haven't done enough. God is not looking for servants who only do for themselves. God is simply looking for servants who use what he has given them for his glory and his kingdom come. And so the key spiritual truth for us from this passage is not asking ourselves if we've done enough, but that God has given us everything we need to prepare for Christ's return. All we have to do is use it for his glory. 
It's really pretty simple. And the bonus is, not only has God generously given us all that we need to prepare for Christ's return, God will reward us for our devotion to him and his kingdom. God does not compare us to others. God does not measure how much we do, but who we do it for. And this is why the master answered, you did well. You are a good and and loyal, faithful servant. Because you were loyal, faithful, with a small or few things, I will let you care for or put you in charge of much greater many things. That's the expanded Bible translation. You cannot outserve or outgive God. <laughs> Following Jesus does have a cost, and it is hard, but the reward is so much greater. One thing I want to leave us with as we close is consider the fact that those who believe that God is good, that God is generous, that he's given us everything we need, those are the ones that actually fully invest in his kingdom. But those that struggle with asking ourselves, is God really good? Can I really fully trust him? Those are the ones that probably hold back. And some of us have had maybe fatherly images, father experiences that don't image the Heavenly Father. Some of us have struggled to trust if God is really good, and that's okay. I know God understands, but I want to challenge you to step out in faith, trust that God is good, that he exists, and he rewards, as it says in Hebrews, and watch and see what God will do for you. I was told that you've been talking about John the Baptist And I think he's a great example of this very principle where John said, he must become greater, I must become less. How would your life look differently if you sought to esteem Jesus above your own gain, your own reputation, your own advancement, and your own wealth? How would my life look differently? Do we truly trust in a good God that we cannot outgive? This is how we know if we're doing enough. This is how we keep God at the center of our lives, and this is how we prepare for God's kingdom come. So would you stand with me? I want to recite together the next verse in response to what we just received from the word. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let's say it one more time. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Amen.